We all know there are times when you don't have many choices in who you work with, like when a pipe bursts and you need a plumber right now. But when it comes to your mental health, you should have choices so you don't get stuck with a therapist who can't remember what you tell them every week. To find a good therapist for you, try ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book hundreds of types of doctors, including thousands of mental health providers. We're talking about therapists, psychologists, and psychiatrists. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of patient-reviewed in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. The typical wait time to see a mental health provider booked on ZocDoc is just four days. That's it. You can even score same-day appointments, either online or in person. I use this, and you should too. Go to ZocDoc.com stronger and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash stronger. ZocDoc.com slash stronger. And in all of your travels and everything you've done in the last 15 years, what would you say are some of the biggest lessons you've learned about grief overall? Hmm. I think first and foremost, the most important thing is that there is no right answer. And if you can be a productive member of society and don't bring yourself harm, you're doing a great job. It's something as small as that. But that might not be small for a lot of folks. But I think that's the most important. There's no right answer. The second thing is you have to be able to get to a place where you are comfortable sitting in the grief. And that is something that I avoided for many years. I was running away from that because if I actually did that, I had to admit to myself that dad was truly gone. And that was something that I did not do for a long time. And what what it sounds- Welcome to Mentally Stronger, the show that will help you develop the mental strength you need to reach your greatest potential, no matter what life throws your way. I'm Amy Morin, psychotherapist, mental strength trainer, and an international best-selling author of five books on mental strength. Every Monday, I introduce you to a guest whose story and expertise can inspire you to think, feel, and do your best in life. And the fun part is, we record it all from a sailboat in the Florida Keys. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Do you struggle to work through grief? Do you ever wish that you had a better way to honor someone's life after they're gone? Do you have a hard time moving forward after your loss? If you answered yes to any of those questions, today's episode is for you. I'm talking to Luke Russert. He's a journalist, author, and former NBC News correspondent. He's known for his work covering Capitol Hill and the 2008 presidential election. Luke is also the son of the late Tim Russert, a renowned journalist and the former moderator of NBC's Meet the Press. Luke's the author of a New York Times bestselling book called Look For Me There, Grieving My Father, Finding Myself. In it, he explores his personal journey with grief and healing after the loss of his father. Some of the things he talks about today are the pressures he felt to follow in his father's footsteps, how he found new meaning in his life, and what he's learned about grief and loss. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for The Therapist's Take. It's the part of the show where I'll give you my take on Luke's strategies for finding strength when you're going through grief. So here's Luke Russert on grief, finding peace, and honoring lost loved ones. 
Luke Russert, welcome to Mentally Stronger. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate the fact that you wrote this book. It's called Look For Me There, but I love the subtitle, Grieving My Father, Finding Myself. So I was in a strange place in my life when, when I remember watching the news and hearing that your father had passed away. I had lost my mom in 2003 from a brain aneurysm. So much like when you lost your dad, she was here one minute and gone the next. And then in 2006, my husband died of a heart attack. So I remember when I watched the news and I heard about your dad, like my first thought was like his poor family going through this and everybody talking about how young he was and how they couldn't believe that he'd passed away because he was fine one minute and, and that he looked so healthy and all of these questions that came up. So I just remember thinking, oh, I kind of know what his family's going through. I wonder how they are. Never dreamed someday I'd get the opportunity to ask you, <laughs> how, how are you now, now that it's been, what, 15 years since your dad passed yeah. away? Yeah. You know, I like to say that uh, you may never move on, but you move forward in some capacity. And for me, writing the book was deeply cathartic. And it brought me to a place where I was still missing my father, but I got to a place of where when I thought of him, uh, the first inclination wasn't to have tears come out. It was more sort of a smile. And I got to a place where I realized, which is really the premise of my book, that we as those who are still here uh, and, and those who have left us, those who have left us would want us we're still here to really be happy when we think about them. Uh, you know, my dad was one of the most optimistic guys in the world. And I think the last thing that he would ever want is for me to be downtrodden and upset all the time when I thought about him. But it took me a long time to get there. And the reason why is I think just what you said, the wounds are so fresh. There's a suddenness to it. There's this unexplainable, why now? Why now? And then you look around the world and you see all these awful people that are still around and you go, why couldn't it have been one of them, right? Yep. And you, you get to those dark places. But I think for me, what I ultimately realized in the course of writing and through traveling and journaling was that, look, it's a, it's a part of life. It's something that we all experience in some capacity and we all do our, our, our best to, to get through it in our own ways. But uh, you really just have to get to a place of peace. And if you get to a place of peace, I think ultimately you can get to some level of acceptance, although it may never come. And that's okay too. I have a lot of friends who never have accepted the losses in their life. And I understand why, because it took me a long time to accept, to accept mine. But I also think that you just asking the question, Amy, is so important because this is an area in our life that you would think is discussed more, but it's still taboo. Which is ironic because it is the one thing we're all ultimately going to face in some capacity at some point, right? Yes. So I think conversations like this are wonderful because I always say to people, there is no singular right approach. Everybody is different when it comes to this because your relationships with those who are, are gone are, are different. Where you are in life is different. Um, I lost my father when I was 22 years old. Had I lost him when I was 32 or I had been 12, it would have been completely different. Uh, but ultimately, the best thing you can do is to life that honors them to the best of your abilities and, and, and don't hurt yourself when you're doing something well. And how do you find that balance of how do you honor somebody, but at the same time, find yourself so that you aren't just living for them or that you aren't just copying them? 
It's a great question. And that's something I struggled with for a long time. You know, I write in the book, one of the reasons why I went to go work at NBC News after my father passed away was it was a wonderful opportunity. But also I thought this idea of legacy management. And I was very struck when I put the book out into uh, the ether because I had no idea what the response was going to be. I really didn't. And there was a few things that I was fascinated uh, that really resonated with people, which was that idea of I have to do something for the person who we lost. Uh, interestingly enough, there is a lot of firstborn daughters that reached out to me that had that had that uh, mentality. This idea of well, I just can't necessarily pursue my own dreams because I owe it to my parents who sacrificed so much, or I owe it to my parents who put on me in the right track, or I owe it to my spouse, or I owe it to my child who I lost, etc. And I think there's an element of that which we certainly should sit and, and examine. Uh, but it goes back to what I said originally: is that are you pursuing something for somebody who is not here? And how much of that pursuit, what effect does it have on you? And think about that. Now, it may be something that is completely uh, cathartic and something that you want to pursue. A friend of mine, Wright Thompson, he wrote a great book called Pappy Land, which is about a whiskey family in Kentucky. And essentially, one of the premises of the book is that the son ends up carrying the mantle of his father and his grandfather. And that brought him a lot of joy because that was sort of what he saw the purposes was of his life. But I would also argue that you don't necessarily have to do that. If you don't want to become the whiskey king of Kentucky, then you can go off and live a very healthy and, and, and happy life. And I think that's sort of where I got to a point is, okay, I know my father would be proud of me no matter what I did because ultimately he wanted me to be happy. He would not want me to be in a position or a job that caused me anxiety and anguish, which towards the end, I was really in that place. But there's a fine line here because I think one of the things you have to guard against is the woe is me, right? Like, oh, I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to do any work. Well, you know, you don't want to do that completely. You can have days like that. But you also have to find that purpose for yourself. And it's not necessarily maybe the purpose that you think your parents want for you. Did you find yourself like almost taking on qualities of your dad when you worked in the news, like things that you were copying, maybe that were his mannerisms or certain things like that? I think there's some things you're just born with. Like we have a we have a hunch <laughs> that we have when we stand up, and there's certain inflections of the voice which I began to notice as certainly as I got older. But I do think you're touching on something which is very important, which is a lot of times, um, especially if you lose a parent who you know is well known in the community. I got a lot of people that reached out to me and said this: is that you sometimes try to take on their position in said community. Now, in my case, it was different because my father was on television and known by millions, but this can happen as if you know, the local pastor in the community dies and, and their son or their daughter tries to you know, become, just sort of roll it and go into the role and, and be that presence that people need because it brings them comfort. And that's something that I write about is that that is an area where I struggle, which is that I knew that going out there and smiling and back slapping and carrying my father's torch still lit made a lot of people happy and made a lot of people more comfortable in their day-to-day life. I got a lot of uh, letters that said, you know, we miss you on TV because part of Tim was still alive when you were there. Wow. But that's, you know, it's heartwarming. It's lovely. But um, that's a decision I had to make. Did I really want to do that? And I think there's a lot of people who, hey, they go, you know what? I, I've met uh, sons of, and daughters of well-known people. And they go, you know, that's sort of my lot in life. That's what I want to do. For me, I wasn't necessarily sure. And uh, there's a, it's certainly a part of me, and I'm happy uh, to talk about it and happy to do it, but there's also a part of me that's it's different, and I write about that in the book, including learning about my mom and, and, and her whole uh, and, and, 
in her view on life. Well, we see that with siblings sometimes too. When uh, younger people lose a sibling, they often take on the qualities of that of that sibling almost because they don't want their parents to miss some of those qualities that maybe that child had, something like that. But we don't really talk about that because I see it happen in adult lives too, where we take on qualities of people. Sometimes it's for ourselves because we think we're carrying the torch, but also sometimes because we think other people won't be quite as sad if I take on some of these things. So I can only imagine for you where you're getting those messages from complete strangers who are saying, hey, we appreciate that you're doing this. Do you want to get high quality meat delivered straight to your house? Or in my case, a sailboat? Try ButcherBox. It saves me time and money. And if you order right now, Mentally Stronger listeners can get steak, chicken, or salmon free in every single order for an entire year. I love that ButcherBox offers grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, and wild-caught seafood. There are no antibiotics or added hormones. They even offer vegetarian options. ButcherBox lets you decide how often you want deliveries, and you can pick a curated plan, or you could completely customize your box. Sign up at butcherbox.com stronger and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com stronger and use code STRONGER to choose your free-for-a-year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. I have a story that I like to tell is, um, and I didn't put it in the book now, I wish I had, is when I was working on Capitol Hill for NBC, Sometimes I would go have lunch around the Capitol. I went out to lunch with a friend of mine and we were sitting there eating and it was right on the street. And this lady walks by and she sees me and she starts crying and she comes over and gives me a big hug and says, you know, I miss your dad so much. I loved him. You know, thank you. And, and, you know, I immediately got up and I went and I was very kind to her and I chatted her up and I was sincere. And the person I was eating lunch with, she says to me, because isn't that weird? I mean, doesn't that like, affect you in some capacity? She goes, I, I can't believe how you just sort of popped up and you immediately went into the comforter mode. Um, what do you, and it was the first time I had ever really thought about it. It's like, yeah, most people don't sit on the street and have someone cry and come up to them and immediately flip on a switch and go into comforter mode. What is that comforter mode? Where did you learn how to do that? Is that just sort of muscle memory? Is that you sort of, uh, you just sort of embrace this role inherited in this craft, right? And once I started to think about that, that made a lot of things become, whoa, wait, what am I doing here? You know, is, is that really how I want to go, go about things? And I think it's really important. You have to look inside. It's obviously you always want to be cordial in, in your life, but you have to see, wow, is that really sort of the weight I want to carry uh, going forward? And for me, it wasn't in, in, at that level. And there is this discomfort with being sad and other people seeing us be sad. So even well-meaning friends and family will often be like, well, I'm going to take you out to cheer you up when you're grieving because it's so uncomfortable to sit with somebody in their sadness. Did you find that? I did. And I think I appreciated a lot of it. And there was other parts where I felt, you know, we, I just like to be alone. And one of the things that I love that you've written about is don't fear being alone. That's one of the things that I think is so important, uh, especially when during the grieving process. You know, I had a few uh, years there in the beginning where I really – did fear being alone because then I had to sit in those thoughts. And it wasn't until I embraced that, the power of aloneness, that I really reached a level of mental clarity uh, that I would never have had because it is so easy to throw yourself into the doldrums of the day, 
it is so easy to throw yourself into other people's lives and other people's relationships and depend on those completely. And look, there are some folks that are hardwired like that. They want to be around a pack all the time, right? I'm an only child. I wasn't hardwired like that. Uh, but I did realize that I was not going to succeed until I got to that point where I myself was comfortable with the person in the mirror and in, in, in the surroundings uh, uh, around me. So I think it takes, a, it takes a little work to get there for sure. Definitely. How did you deal with the fact that your biggest opportunity ultimately came from this really dark place that you, you gave the eulogy at your dad's funeral, mm-hmm. which attracted the attention of lots of people in TV who said, hey, Luke, you have to come do this and, and be on TV. You have this gift. How did you deal with that? It's interesting. You know, it was something where at the my mom said, you really got to make this decision for yourself. And I give her a lot of credit for that. She didn't try to push me in any direction. And it was one where I was deeply reflective. And I said, you know, the world works in mysterious ways. Uh, from the great sadness comes great opportunity. But at that time, specifically, I felt that I was, A, upholding the legacy. I felt that there was good work to be done because the youth vote was a very central component of that election 2008 story. And I got a fortune cookie that said the greatest cure for misery is hard work. And that is true. So (laughs) I threw myself into that job and I had to go through a lot, especially in the beginning. Uh, But I think there was something about, all right, it gives me a sort of external validation that I keep my father's legacy alive, which is making a lot of people happy. It also gives me something to do uh, that is, that is hard work. And in my case, I was, uh, I'm I'm happy. I was smart enough to realize this at a young age. I only signed a one-year deal because I wanted to see how it went. And if it didn't work out, I knew that I could go on and do something else and go back and go back to my original plan, which was trying to get a master's in international relations. So it was something which I was conscious of the beginning of of where it was coming from and and what was going to be expected of me. I think what was interesting is, especially in the moment, and this is something I say to people, is that you, you kind of get so caught up in trying to interpret different messages or moods, right? That I always say, okay, take a breather and just make sure this is really what you want to do. And it's not just the moment speaking to you. And that's what I think is very important with grief to going back to that power of aloneness is having some time to just sit by yourself to comprehend all these different things that are happening. Uh, And I had a little bit of that. I probably wish I had done more, uh, but I don't regret that decision at the end of the day. And I I ask you because my story is somewhat similar. I wrote 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do as a letter to myself on one of my darkest days. Turns into a book deal. Which is great stuff, by the way. So I've I've, I've always enjoyed that. Thank you. But here I am 10 years later, but I'll have people be like, that is amazing that something so great got to happen to you after you went through something bad. And like, yes, I'm thrilled that this happened, but like it doesn't equal out. It's not like if you have four horrible things happen, it's great to have four (laughs) wonderful things. But at the same time to know that, yes, sometimes in our darkest moments, like you never know what's right around the corner. It doesn't feel like something amazing is about to happen, but but it could. And your story is also proof of that, that here you are. Yeah. And I also think you take it and that's sort of reflective of what are you doing in that moment? Right. And what are you doing? Part of it is you have to will yourself. It's hard to get out of bed on those types of days. Uh, But also if you're willing to sit in that uncertainty and be comfortable in that certainty. And that's something I learned while traveling is that that's really where your brain can get to an incredible place because uh, you, in, in theory, you're, you are, immersed in those lessons that you taught you know, back back you know, 10 years ago, which is these ideas like 
you, know, you don't owe everybody everything. You got to be comfortable with, with aloneness. Um, you know, don't fear change. So those are things that I honestly find all stem from being comfortable in uncertainty. And if you can get to that place, there's a lot of interesting things that you can do facing a very difficult moment. Uh, it is a, it, interestingly enough, and this is where it, it's, it's this great irony is that people around you sometimes are more receptive to life changing decisions, um, after a, a moment like that. So if someone says, you know, uh, I had a friend of mine, she lost her mother and she had been a wall street grinder, just absolutely moving up through the ranks of wall street, money, 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 blah, 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 moving and very successful. And she lost her mother to an aneurysm and said, you know what, this doesn't bring me joy. I'm going to open a flower shop. And she loves her flower shop. Right. And I think that had she done that while her mom was around, people would have been like, what, what, what's going on? But there is that moment, which is, you know what, I'm going to recalibrate my life and see where I'm at and do what brings me joy. And so there is some opportunity within that that I think is, is certainly worthwhile to look at. And how'd you make this shift from saying, okay, I'm going to go from being on TV to now I'm going to travel the world? I think for me, it was a combination of factors. It was one, I didn't really know who I was independent of my last name, of my life in the Washington bubble. Uh, and I felt like I had just been grinding from a very young age. My parents were very demanding, in a good way. I mean, I appreciate that because it instilled some very important lessons. Uh, but I felt it, it was just sort of this cruel twist. I was like, oh, here was my, my gap year and then dad passed away and you're suddenly thrust, you know, like a rocket into a very intense world. But I got to a point where I had covered Capitol Hill um, decently well for a while, about seven years. And I had this off, uh, this, this, this by chance meeting with House Speaker John Boehner, who I covered at the time. And he saw me in the hallway and he said, I want you to come by my office. I said, okay. And I thought he was angry about coverage, which is common. Politicians will chew you out if they don't like how you cover them. So I go to his office and he opens the door and he's smoking a cigarette. And he's reading a golf magazine. He says, uh, what are you doing here? I said, well, you invite me into your office. What do you mean? What am I doing here? He goes, no, what are you doing here? What are you doing here on Capitol Hill? Because I've seen you here for seven years. You can do the job in your sleep. Just make sure this is really what you want to do because people stay here 20, 30, 40 years. It's a, it's a transactional place. They might not ever know what exactly it was they did here or why they wanted to stay here. It's very easy to get caught up in the cycles of life. And that was a haunting question. What are you doing here? Because I thought I had I was accomplished. I was on my way up. You know, here's the House Speaker of the, of the United States, telling, you know, second in line of the presidency, who's on top of Mount Olympus, right? And sort of saying, well, the view might not be as, as, as clear as you think. And that haunted me. And it started a process of self-reflection, which was, okay, what exactly do I want and who am I? And I couldn't answer the question. So I knew that I wasn't going to answer the question by repeating the same behaviors. Another thing you talk about, right? Repeating the same behaviors, going into work every single day, which was to the outside world, great. Hey, I'm an Emmy winner. Okay, great. I got you know good clothes. I look good. Date beautiful people. All right, great. The end of the day, who who is that person? And if you can't answer that, then I think it's it's time well spent to do a a, a good self evaluation. And so I knew that for me, I had to get out of the environment that was comfortable. I had to just just throw myself into far-flung places. And my mom, who was a Peace Corps volunteer in her early 20s in Colombia, kind of saw the wisdom and value of that because she did that herself. She 
uh, wanted to know who she was. She grew up at a time when women were kind of pushed towards being nurses and teachers. And she said, well, I want to go be adventurous. And the only way she could really do that was join the Peace Corps at the time. And so she did and ended up building schools in Colombia. But she always said to me that when she measured herself up against the world, it's when she really started to realize who she was and how she wanted to approach life. So I thought I found some merit in that and said, you know what, this sort of hit the open road. And it was supposed to be about six, nine months, maybe a year, it turned into three years, but you know, and then four years to write the book. So I joke it was my own seven years in Tibet <laughs> you know, to, to get there. And you traveled to some um, far ends of the earth, places that yeah. most people will never see. How did you pick where to travel and what countries to visit? Uh, part of it was I got this desire to, all right, I want to see all the continents. And then once you sort of select a continent, you see, all right, what's an easy way to go geographically? So do I go east-west? Do I go north-south? Uh, do I go in a circular route? Uh, and then you use the tools, which I, I think is the most valuable tool of all time, which is Google Flights, which shows you where direct flights go to in each sort of airport. So I would always say, right, how many times can I fly somewhere directly and not have to change a plane? Because that wastes hours of the day. And then you can squeeze as much as you possibly can into the shortest amount of time. But there's no, like I said, there's no proper way to travel, except don't check bags. That's the one thing I would say. <laughs> uh, but I would meet people along the way who would, uh, they would get to a city or they would get to a country and they would plop themselves down for six months or nine months and say, well, that's really the only way you really understand something. I also met people who were crazier than me that would stop in for 36 hours and be like, all right, more countries to count. So yeah, you can barnstorm or you can, you can sit down and whatever you please, but there are a lot of lessons to be learned once you're outside of your comfort zone. What kind of lessons did you learn about yourself? Maybe things that you'd always held true about life, but you realized through your travels that, yeah, maybe those things aren't as accurate as I thought. I think first and foremost, you know, my father was very risk adverse and we come from a family of Irish Catholic civil servants. So his dad was a garbage man. Uh, his grandfather uh, worked for the county. So there was always this idea of, you know, don't rock the boat. If you rock the boat, bad things happen. Stay within your lane. Work hard with, with, the, with what you know. And, uh, you know, you, t you can take risks, but make sure they're very calculated. Whereas my mother would just sort of throw herself into things and be like, I'm strong enough to handle it and I will, I will make do and, and life's an adventure and don't sit on the sidelines and you know, get out there. And I think for me, I had always uh, been more aligned with my dad on that, sort of not, really not going too far outside of, of what the comfort zone was. And once I started to travel and I started to realize like, okay, I can handle being in a far-flung village where I don't know the language and... Uh, you know, maybe I wake up one morning and there's a coup happening in Zimbabwe or I'll get a, a terrible stomach uh, issues in, in Sri Lanka. But ultimately, I'm equipped that I'm going to be okay. And I think that was really life-changing for me because it allowed me to realize that you don't have to fear change that much, but also have some confidence in yourself. And if you get to a place where you're confident in your abilities to withstand moments, withstand trauma, withstand difficulty, that's a very powerful tool. Um, now, I caution, you don't want to be you know, Mr. Hardo, Rambo, Marine guy all the time. That's why I always say to people, I can withstand anything. It's like, no, life is hard. There are things that are going to stick to you. But if you can get to a point where you go, you know what? I've experienced loss. It was very difficult. It was very hard. And I know that. And it's going to be there. Or I'm in a place and I can't speak the language and everything's going wrong. But you know what? 
I'm well, I'm, I'm equipped enough that I can move forward. There's, there's a lot of power in that. And, uh, that's really one of the central lessons I learned. The other is just sort of like we often in America have blinders on and there's some things in other cultures that are, are very healthy and very uh, smart. One of the things that I like to say is it's, it's just something that was mundane is a lot of communities, there's such a, a bigger, uh, there's a bigger, um, there's, there's a bigger focus put on being a good neighbor. And what I mean by that is like you engage with your neighbors, you talk with your neighbors, like everyone sort of gets out at certain moments of the day and chats with one another and connects as a, as a, as a neighborhood and as a community. And while we have that in the United States, it's sort of different. I feel like we're all kind of in our little compounds to a degree uh, and there's not as much neighborhood activity. So the more neighborhood, neighborhood activity you can find, the better. That's something I learned as well. I like that because I think in America, sometimes we think you're being a good neighbor if you don't play your music too loud, right? As right, long as you don't disturb right. the neighbor, then you're a good neighbor. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Yeah, good neighbors with good fences, right? Yeah, that was the old Robert Frost thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So put down the fence a little bit. <laughs> How about now that you're back and you've stopped? I assume you're not traveling 24 oh, no, 7 anymore. No, no. How's it been adjusting to life where you aren't just waking up and I was very, I was lucky because I wrote the book, uh, in, I started writing the book in 2019 and then I did some more traveling after the initial writing and then 2020 shut everything down. So that sort of, that, that was a good education, (laughs) this thing tethered to one spot. Uh, and while that was a very scary time, I think for our country, uh, there's a lot of lessons, at least for me that I learned with that, which was that, uh, just, just sort of teaching yourself how to approach a day and in, in, in structure and having to structure yourself. Um, and I was lucky because I had started doing that a little bit in 2019, but by 2020, I really got into a rhythm of, all right, what needs to be done and, and how to do that. So I've actually, it's interesting. I just started traveling a little bit. I went and visited my mom's schools in Colombia and I brought a copy of the book. And that was the first time I'd been in Latin America for a while. And I had a friend get married in Aruba uh, so I've, I've been peeking out a little bit and I, I, I'm going to go to Europe in the fall. So I'm going to get back out there a little bit, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. As I started to do it, like I got caught in a customs line in Colombia and I was like, yeah, these are parts I selectively deleted. <laughs> like, I, don't re- I don't remember all those long customs lines that I had to endure. And then I went back to my journals. I, I dealt with a lot of them. I just deleted them. Gotcha. <laughs> And in all of your travels and everything you've done in the last 15 years, what would you say are some of the biggest lessons you've learned about grief overall? I think first and foremost, the most important thing is that there is no right answer. And if you can be a productive member of society and don't bring yourself harm, you're doing a great job. It's something as small as that. But that might not be small for a lot of folks. But I think that's the most important. There's no right answer. The second thing is you have to be able to get to a place where you are comfortable sitting in the grief. And that is something that I avoided for many years. I was running away from that because if I actually did that, I had to admit to myself that dad was truly gone. And that was something that I did not do for a long time. And what, what it sounds crazy. Like, what do you mean he didn't admit to dad was gone? It's like, well, I, I knew he wasn't around, but I just didn't think about it. Right, I started. It's like you know what? It happened. Uh, we, we move on, and you know, I'll see him on the other side. God bless, and you know, smile and nod. But it doesn't work like that. And one of the things I heard during this book tour, which is so fascinating, is a lady said to me, "She goes, you know, I really uh, had a tough time dealing with the loss of my husband, 
and it came near the loss of my mom. And then I woke up one morning and I realized that nothing would ever be the same, but that's okay. And I said, that's a really good way of putting it, right? Is that you wake up and you know that nothing will be the same, but that's okay. And that's ultimately what you have to deal with. I don't have the best answer for how to get there. I think it's so different for everybody. But what I can tell you is that you can't get anywhere until you start confronting it. I think my dog agrees if you can hear that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree as well. I think there are part of us that just want to escape, run away, do anything we mm-hmm. can to uh, to not feel bad. But grief is really the process by which we heal. You have to go through it. But our tendency is to try to go around. And I don't know why we don't talk yeah. about it enough. I, I think the tendency is to go around. And I think the tendency is that a lot of people will say, oh, okay, you know, they're just going through a tough time or you know, this too shall pass. And there is an element of truth to that, but you got to be able to explore those feelings, right? Hey, this is the reality now. How am I going to live within this reality? Um, And I wish people would be more comfortable talking about it, but I think that there's just, we're so hardwired and pre-programmed this sort of the, the rugged individualism of what the country is founded upon almost that, you know, deal with it and, and get on, get on with yourself. Um, and it's, it, it, I wish that would change a little bit, but conversations like this are, are helping to, to move the needle. Well, your book certainly is a wonderful gift to the world. I think for us to learn more about grief and somebody's personal journey, you take us on such a deep dive on what you went through. So I certainly appreciate that for people who want to learn more about you, Luke, where's the best place for them to go? Uh, you can go to lookformethere.com. That's the title of the book. And then you can always go on uh, Instagram at Luke Russert where I engage. And uh, it's been really neat talking with people about their own uh, losses. One of the things that has just struck me is when I wrote the book, I thought I'd get a lot of people in sort of our age range, but I've had letters from people in their 90s that have said, you know, I read the book and it helped me process the loss of my husband or my own dad. I go, man, if you're in your 90s and you lost your dad, I mean, you could have lost your dad. 50, 60 years ago. It's amazing. So it's certainly something which is not, uh, is still very unexplored in, in in our national conscience, for sure. It is. So again, thank you for writing it and for putting it out there. And no surprise, it became a New York Times bestseller because people need this information. So thank you so much, Luke. Thank you so much. I mean, thanks for all that you do. Thank you. Welcome to The Therapist Take. It's the part of the show where I'll give you my take on Luke's mental strength building strategies. Here are three of my favorite tips that he shared. Number one, find a way to honor someone's memory. I like that Luke talked about finding a way to honor somebody's memory while also prioritizing your own well-being. That's a tough balance though. But sometimes there are simple little things we can do to honor somebody's memory. In my first book, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, I shared how we created a tradition to go on an adventure on my husband Lincoln's birthday after he passed away. Friends and family, we usually get together and we've done things like we've been skydiving. One year we took flying trapeze lessons. We swam with sharks. And we do all of these weird things because it's really about people who loved him getting together. We share stories and talk about him and do things that we know he would have loved to do. And that one thing that we do every year has probably been one of the best things I could have done to help me work through grief. 
Of course, you don't have to do big things like that. You might just eat the person's favorite meal once a year. You might watch their favorite movie by yourself or do something kind for the community in your loved one's name. There are lots of things you could pick from to remember somebody and honor their life. Number two, set out to do new things. While it's important to honor somebody's life, you don't want to go to the extreme end of the spectrum where you feel like you have to follow in their footsteps, take on qualities or characteristics of that person, or start only living for them. Those things, they can make you feel a little bit better initially in the midst of your grief. When you really miss somebody, you'll do anything you can to still feel connected to them. And it might seem like it's reducing your pain when you start living their life, but it keeps you from creating your own life and eventually you'll struggle to be happy over the long term. Sometimes you have to create a new normal for yourself by challenging yourself to try new things. You don't necessarily have to travel the whole world like Luke did. You might test out some new hobbies or meet new people. And in the process, as you learn more about yourself, you can start healing some of the pain about the life that you're leaving behind. And number three, hold conversations about grief and loss. Sometimes when you lose somebody, the people around you stop talking about that person. They don't want you to feel sad or they don't want to bring it up in case it's hard for you. When people stop talking about your loved one, it can be hard to talk about your grief. Other people might assume that you're no longer grieving. And then when you start meeting people who never met your loved one, it's hard too, and it's tougher to bring up the subject. But everybody experiences grief at one time or another, and talking about it can be really helpful. If you don't have a friend or a family member that you're comfortable talking to, consider joining a grief support group. You can even find one online if you're not comfortable talking to somebody in person. Just talking to other people who understand can help you feel less alone in your feelings. And if you're having difficulty working through your grief, you might benefit from talking to a therapist. Grief-related issues are a really common reason why people go to therapy. So those are three of Luke's strategies that I highly recommend. Find a way to honor your loved one's memory, challenge yourself to do new things, and talk to somebody about your grief. If you want to hear more of Luke's story, check out his book, Look For Me There. Thank you for hanging out with us today and for listening to Mentally Stronger. If you know somebody that could benefit from learning more about mental strength, share this show with them. Simply sharing a link could help someone feel better and grow stronger. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, or whatever app that you listen to us on. Ratings and reviews are one of the best ways we can help other people learn about our show. And as always, a big thank you to my show's producer, who's become one of the few people on the planet who gets to vote for who wins a Grammy, Nick Valentine. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu.